The Future of Cities is presented by Katerra. Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Twilio, the leading cloud communications platform. This Wednesday and Thursday, Twilio is hosting Signal, a customer and developer conference that explores the intersection of technology, innovation, and communications. Visit signal.twilio.com and use the promo code MISSION20 at checkout to receive 20% off your tickets. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for the Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Chris Lahane. Chris is the head of global policy and communications at Airbnb. We spoke with him about predicting the future and how Airbnb will affect the future of cities. We also talk about how homes are changing to accommodate sharing through services like Airbnb and why New York City has 200,000 empty housing units in the middle of a housing crisis. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Chris, tell me a little bit about what you do here at Airbnb. Uh, You know, I think I have one of the greatest jobs. I travel about 100 days a year and I was on Twitter a couple weeks ago. And I remember I was tweeting, I typically when I travel, I'll get to the bigger answer in a second, but this backs into it. Typically when I travel, I will always get up uh, in the morning and either do a a run through a cool place in the world, right? Um, We're in 191 countries, 80,000 cities, so we're we're virtually everywhere, easier to name the places we're not in. Uh, And part of the workouts in the morning, it's great to get an insight into gym culture from around the world and running culture from around the world. So I've got this whole, and and someone, I don't know who it was, tweeted me back and said, you've got the greatest job ever. (laughs) It is a great job. So uh, as the head of global policy, as the title probably suggests, I'm really responsible for a team. And a team is really the ones that do the heavy lifting here, a team of about 300 folks who help represent us and our relationships in those communities, in those 80,000 plus cities, 191 countries around the world. You know, Airbnb, and we'll probably get into this a little bit, is a community-based model. We don't exist but for our hosts and for our guests. Hosts are the people who make their homes available. Guests are obviously the travelers. And so for us, what our office really is designed to do is to support those folks and ultimately make it possible for them to engage in what we call home sharing, Home sharing itself is not necessarily new. I always like to joke that actually the hotels disrupted home sharing. That's how people used to travel in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but over a digital platform where um, uh, where people can travel with you know around the world you know via our platform and stay at other people's homes, you know that is a relatively new thing. And for the most part, in a lot of parts of the world, particularly in more developed countries, you know this is a new thing. And so we ultimately have to create new laws, new regulations, new practices for this new thing to make sure it's working as well as possible for everyone. So I love that idea. And it's something that we are talking a lot about in the future cities is history tends to repeat itself. And I love the idea that home sharing is actually not a new thing. (laughs) It's like this was something that was happening 
you know, a thousand years ago yeah. where it was, hey, you know, I mean, even you could get very biblical with yes. that, but you know, you knock on the door and yeah. you need a place to stay, right? Yeah. So I think that from a community standpoint, and there's, I mean, all sorts of cultures. I mean, I think it's in even Hammur Hammurabi's code is yes. one, of, one of them is about- Almost every culture. Hammurabi has it, the Greeks, Athens had it, Athens was founded. You're a thousand percent right, which is if you go to almost every culture in the world, there is an element in that culture where there was almost an obligation or a requirement that you welcome someone into your home if they're a stranger. I hope I'm not revealing anything about you, but when we were talking earlier, you served our country in the military, you served in Afghanistan. There was in Pashtun culture. Oh yeah, uh, I know. Home, right? You probably experienced it directly, right? Yeah, right? Pa come Pashtun to Wali. Yeah. So it's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, they, that's what, and I forget the movie off the top of my head, but. Yeah, the movie with uh, Mark Wahlberg, yeah, yeah. right? When, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That's yeah. literally yeah. like the plot of yeah. that, which is a real thing that actually happened in yeah. real life was that they, they took in somebody. But no, I totally agree. And I think that this is one of those, I think what, what the secret, in my opinion, to Airbnb is from the beginning is like, it actually is something like primal in us yes. that you want to connect with people you don't know because like humans are inherently curious yeah. and like that's baked into our DNA yes. to support each other. And like, even despite some of the things that are going on in the world at any given time or over history, like yeah. obviously there's like the dark side, but the light side is somebody who needs help knocks on the door and you're going to answer and you're going to give them what you have at the table. That, that's so true. So when you think about it and I may have my dates a little bit off, but, but I think the, the general point makes sense, which is, you know, arguably humans have been around for about a hundred thousand years about 90% of that time, they were nomadic. They were moving around. And if you think about, you know, the you know, advancement of the human condition, whether it was migration, you know, when people left the old Divai Gorge, whether it was immigration for economic prosperity, whether it's integration to bring people together from different backgrounds, exploration, the future of our species. I mean, travel has always been at the center of advancing the human condition. And you, know, you go back, and we we're just talking about Afghanistan and the culture that existed. You go back to Athens, you know, there are two phrases that exist, one, and they're in opposition to each other. One is xenophobia, which is yep. fear of strangers. The other is philoxenia. And philoxenia was integral to Athenian society and ultimately the Greek city-states. And it was predicated on this idea that if a stranger came into a community, you would welcome them. And there was a real theory behind it. First of all, it would actually lead to deconfliction. Second of all, for communities to succeed at that time, they wanted to continue to grow their economy. And bringing people in, you know, would promote that. And it was, you know, one of the earliest versions of democracy and, and very consistent with all of that. But it's interesting how those sort of, you know, you can get the yin and the yang and, 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 and how all that works. And you know, I grew up in a state called Maine, top of New England. And our version of Pashtun Wally or Philoxenia would be, you know, we used to get a lot of snow. One of the reasons I moved to California, no, no, yeah. no snow. Yeah. But, you know, you would, uh, at some point, you would get trapped in the blizzard at some point. And, you know, there was basically an unwritten code in Maine someone knocked on your door in the middle of the night because they were trapped in the blizzard, you would take them in. And it certainly happened to me. <laughs> uh, so I do think your insight is, is, is a thousand percent correct. I do think, look, if you want to be an optimist and you're looking at, the, at where the world hopefully goes, you do want to believe that ultimately we are hardwired to be a species that does want to engage and interact with, with others. And I, and I do think that is accurate if you look at history. So, I mean, it's funny that you say that. I mean, I'd say it's the same thing with most cultures that you go to, like I was in Brazil last last World yeah. Cup, and it's a great every, World Cup, wasn't yeah, it? it's great. <laughs> and so every single, and we were not in any of the cities where the soccer was playing. We were just hanging out in Brazil, and every single time we would go talk to any of the Brazilians, 
they were just so happy about that we were in Brazil yeah. and they wanted to show us like this and like, have you been to this place? Have you been to this place? My theory for traveling has always been always take a cab from the airport yeah. because you and then talk to the person yeah. and yeah. ask them where to go. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like I did, you know, we do that every every trip I've ever been on. Yeah. We always do that. And that's where you find the good spots. Yeah. And so I think that that's, you know, an Airbnb is doing something with communities and with experiences yeah. Yeah. that allows kind of an extension of that where, hey, I can actually like look at these experiences in my phone and figure out which ones I want to have ahead of time. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's getting at the core of, of that you know, human experience, which is, you know, people to people uh, engagement. And I do think that, that ultimately, if you're looking to travel, you're looking to tap into the greatest natural resource that exists in any community, and that's going to be its people, right? And you learn about a particular place through its people, right? You learn about the history, the culture, the politics, the art, the food, and you can learn it best through through its people. I'll tell you, I did a, um, so experience is just for those listeners, you know, is, is basically someone who's living in a city and has a particular passion or skill that they're really experts in. And they're now able to go on the Airbnb platform and make that available. So when a traveler is coming in, if you want to learn about the city through their particular passion, you can do it. It's obviously an economic opportunity for those locals. But it is also driving that people-to-people -people engagement. I did, to your point, uh, I was in Brazil about three or four months ago. And I was there. It was a quick hit. I had to go in and meet some, with some government officials. And I was in Rio for about 36 hours. So I land. And I think this sort of illustrates like how, how, how impactful this could be. I landed and I went and did a gastropub tour with a guy who's a local columnist for the newspaper there, Globo. His beat is the pubs. Oh, that's so about a great beat, right? Yeah. He actually wrote a book going to the pubs of the world. He's got, he may have the best job, right? But he took me to, you know, four different places where we had the, the local food and beer. I learned, for example, that the beer in Brazil has a little bit less alcohol, but served at an incredibly cold temperature and you have to drink it really fast. And they right? do that. It's like the leader and that's then right, you have that's the right. cups. That's yeah, exactly no, right. Right. So I, I learned, learned all of that. Right. And then I went to a, a favela, which is sort of the mm. underserved parts of Rio. And I went dancing. I've literally done the same right, thing. Right. I for, did the exact same thing. All, a, a guy from San Francisco went dancing in the favela. Fortunately, there's only still photos. You know, they, you don't want to see the live action shots of this. My wife is from Trinidad Tobago. Her family's, and she was very concerned that this images would ever get out publicly because yeah. it would defame her family. But it was great, right? I went with locals. Next morning, I get up. I went up and I did the beach boxing, which was great. I boxed the kids, so I was a little bit better at, at, at the boxing. But then at the end of the day, did a private dinner at, at foot of the Christ the Redeemer. And it was, you know, I was there for a very short time period, but got like an enormous amount out because ultimately you're dealing with real locals through their passions. And it was just incredible. And so, I mean, I think with the future of cities, you're looking at how we can connect people from city to city is, is part of obviously one of the things that we think is, is interesting. How do you think that like the housing crisis and basically where people are living mm -hmm. in cities in America and all over the world. Like, how do you think that, you know, Airbnb is solving the problem is one thing, but like, what do you think out into the future is going to be one of, one of the ways that kind of technology and connectedness can mm -hmm. kind of help, help solve that problem? Well, I think we're right at the front end of, you know, what is going to be just a enormous transformation. I know you guys spend a lot of time thinking about this and, and, and covering and talking about it, but just really an enormous transformation, both in sort of the physical architecture, what cities 
look like even I think the theory of the design of cities is going through a metamorphosis, you know, as well as, you know, just physically how, how people are going to live. And there's just so many inputs coming into this, right? As a, as a baseline, you know, as we stand here today, right, the number of cities over a million people have just exploded in the last 10, 20 years. And, you know, populations are moving in. Cities tend to be the center of art, culture, history, but also where the, where the good jobs are right now. You know, that has put enormous pressures on cities because they really were designed for a different era. And so, you know, and, and this is all happening also at a time where there's been general wage stagnation globally, particularly in what I would call the OECD countries, that, you know, sort of the, the advanced economy countries. And so you see, you know, housing prices, which are going up, but wages not keeping up with that. Because as these cities get these bigger and bigger populations, you know, they have not yet begun to transform. Now, ultimately, I think that you're going to see, see that begin to happen. This is also all happening at a time climate change, right? Sustainability is becoming a huge issue. You're going to be in a time period where I think a lot sooner than people realize the transportation system is going to change completely because you're not going to need cars. The same way I was just talking with a big property developer who is actually building their buildings right now where they're going to build the underground garages in a way that they could easily be converted into commercial space or even living space because they anticipate a moment in a not-too-distant future where they're not going to need cars. To, they don't need to offer cars, right? You have all this asphalt and parking lots. All those are going to disappear. Right? All that stuff is going to happen. I even think the physical spaces and the size of those physical spaces are going to change. You go back in history, people used to live in a lot smaller spaces. You go to parts of Europe and you can see how small the spaces are, how closely, you know, here in the U.S., people are accustomed to a little bit of bigger spaces. All those things are, are going to go through a metamorphosis. At the same time, I think the nature of work is going to change, right? Industrial age created an economic structure where, for the most part, people would work one job. That's what they did. There was almost a per unit number put on, on them, and, and everything was built around that as, as an organizing principle. You know, prior to that, when you lived in more of an agricultural age uh, or even a nomadic age, you know, people would do multiple things you know, to ultimately make their economics or the equivalent thereof work. I mean, I think you're going to move into a period that's going to be a little bit similar to that. And I also think the nature of how people live is going to relate directly to how they work. I mean, you could imagine, you know, a world where someone is using their, because they're going to probably work in multiple different jurisdictions. So how are they making sure that they're getting, ma- they're maximizing the asset value of their, of their utility, their home when they're not there. So making it available for others potentially having spare rooms that they use to, when others are visiting so that they're always making money. But you're also gonna, are going to have distributed generation where you're going to put solar panels up and sell that directly to the grid. You know, will utilities exist or not exist under that model? They're probably going to have to evolve, right? Because technology is going to allow someone in San Francisco or at least LA, which has more sun than San Francisco, be able to sell electricity to my home state of Maine, <laughs> right? You know, maybe they're teaching people piano lessons and someone comes in their house and they have a piano there and they're making money that way or they're doing cooking lessons or maybe they're cooking for other people in the neighborhood. All that stuff, I think, is going to go through a pretty rad- and then And then just even how these cities are designed, I mean, there's this whole debate taking place right now about sort of, this is my layman's definition of it, but like the formal design or the less formal design, right? And what that really means for sort of facilitating human interactions and engagement. So I think if you sort of take a look at you know, what cities look like today and then think about 20, 25 years from now, I think you're going to go, go through a really radical transformation. So what do you think mm-hmm. makes a city great? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is are its people. I mean, ultimately, you know, the people are the greatest natural resource. I think there are things around a city that 
you can do that, that really does help make a city great? I think, first of all, just the ease of being able to get around from a transportation perspective. And the more of it that you can do, you know, really using your own locomotion, whether it's a bike or it's walking or jogging, is great. So are you able to sort of, you know, I think you're going to see city clusters. And you've seen this in some of the mega cities, right, where you have cities within cities. And I think you're going to start to see versions, you know, of that where people live, work and play in a more specific area as opposed to living in one place, commuting long distances to another place, particularly as the nature of work itself really evolves and changes. So I think that sort of sustainability element, obviously, you know, having a healthy economy is, you know, is the single most important thing. And then having underneath that, I think a healthy education system. But I think all of those things are going to go through, you know, some pretty significant changes in terms of how we think of, think about the nature of work where, and this relates to education, people are going to be doing multiple jobs at the same time, but those multiple jobs are probably going to evolve over time. And so are we going to have a, a, a construct for a public education system where education is available over the course of your entire lifetime? The 40-hour work week was put in during the progressive era in the United States. There's a whole bunch of things, 40-hour work week, minimum wage, uh, safety laws, the weekend, all that came out of the progressive era to respond to industrialization, not distributing the benefits of capitalism in a fair and just way coming out of the Gilded Age. You know, we're in one of those similar time periods right now. And I think you're going to need equally big solutions to those. And I do think one of those is going to be thinking about if you're working five days a week, maybe you work four days a week and one day a week is actually spent on continuing to keep yourself educated at a certain level. But how different is that than the 40-hour work week, right? I mean, the 40-hour work week, but, right, but you're just sort of starting to think about how you're using your time so that you know, ultimately you're always going to have the skills. Well, a competitive advantage of companies was how good their training is. Yes. I mean, like that, that's mm-hmm. like the classic adage, what happens if we train our employees and they leave? Yeah. It's like the better question is what happened if we don't and they stay? You're always having to evolve in this, in, this, in this environment. And then how do you even think about how you're measuring the per unit work output, right? Who is responsible for the creation of the wealth? And are they getting paid you know, in a fair and just way that reflects that, which is different than a hourly definition of labor, right? All those things I think are going to change and then they ultimately manifest themselves in terms of how these cities are actually going to look. Do you think that the way that buildings are seen now where a coffee shop is a coffee shop mm-hmm. or a where you live is an apartment is going to be radically different yes. in the not too distant future? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. You know, whenever you ask these questions, I always think of the analogy, like, you know, growing up and I would watch Star Trek or Star Wars. You know, in all of those sci-fi films, they, when, they, when they showed the spaceships, right, there was always someone driving the spaceship, flying it. Like, think That's about so that. True. Right? You're not going to have anyone flying a spaceship when we actually have space. You're not going to have people fly, driving a car, let alone flying a spaceship, right? So whenever you start to get to these questions, you know, the human brain is a little bit constrained in terms of its ability to predict and project with, with the, because you're always going to use your normative reference points, yeah. right? So there's a, there's a great cartoon where from like, I think it's like the 1906 World Fair, 1902 yeah. World Fair or something like that in Paris. It says like basically like the future, yeah. right? It's like the future of cities, but <laughs> yes. except it's not a podcast, it's a cartoon. <laughs> and it's all these, all these people in flying yeah. cars, like flying over Paris. Yeah. But all the people are still wearing their like 1900 clothes. <laughs> That's right. It's like we could see that that was going to be the future back 100 years. I mean, we still don't have flying cars. But we could see that that was going to be the future. But that you know, it wasn't cars; it was planes. Yes. And it, we're, you're not you're not going to be wearing you're going to be wearing blue jeans. That's that's one of the things that I, I always find funny. It's definitely not an original uh, thing by me. But that everyone in the future wears these other like 
things. I'm like, genes are going nowhere <laughs> until like, Levi Strauss is on to something. Like people are not giving up their genes in a hundred years. That would be my bet. No, I think that's a, that's a pretty good, that's a good log bet. So, but I do think like, I think the people spaces will be smaller. I think there will be designed with, you know, sort of a real health consciousness to it. Like what's a physically and emotionally healthy way to live, right? And that's that that will be different than 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 their way. To, I think that there will be multiple use spaces. I think things will be integrated into each other a lot more. Like I'm not sure you're necessarily going to walk a couple blocks to the coffee shop. That, that may be actually built into your you know your actual living environment. Obviously, technology is going to allow people to communicate in different ways. Are you even going out to get the coffee, or is the coffee being prepared? All those things, I think, are going to change. And so, I think just the very physical layout of, if I say, you go back and and you look at, you know, at how these ancient cities were created, right? That you wouldn't create a city that way now because people were just interacting, living, transportation things were different. And so, as you look for, but you know, I think one of the interesting dynamics of all of this is that you know you have cities that were built primarily during the industrial age. You know, how do they physically evolve? You know, an analogy here, and, and I hope this comes off the right way, is libraries, right? I love libraries. I love public libraries, essential to, I think, to the fabric of a city. But are you really going to have people reading actual bound books? Or is a library more of a public commons public. where people interact and engage? And so what does that look like? Where is it located? Um, I mean, I think you know, and we're going to be yeah. we're going to be talking to to WeWork yeah. in one of the other episodes. Yeah. But I, you know, I think that the idea that the coffee shop that is a coffee shop in a day and a bar yes. at night, or yeah. a you know, we have a coffee shop down the road from where I live in yeah. Oakland that every night has like poetry slams yeah. and stuff like yeah. that, right? I think that those type of multi-use spaces are like it's inevitable. You have to, from a sustainability perspective, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, concrete is the second biggest contributor to carbon out there. Yeah, I can tell you that we're going to be talking a lot about building materials yeah. in this, yeah. uh, in this, and sustainability. And turns out there's a really good material out there. It's yes. called wood. Yes, and it works really, really well. You, you, Paul Hawkins, who I'm sure you've heard of and probably will talk to at some point, has you know has a great book on this and just really looking at you know the actual. I mean, you see, like Seattle's starting to build these bigger buildings yeah, built yeah. out of wood. <laughs> so my, Michael Green's going to be yeah, uh, on great. the podcast. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. But yeah, th th those type of ideas. I mean, like you just have to, I think, use exponential thinking yes. and think about like we can't solve problems mm -hmm. with incrementalism. We yeah. have to solve problems exponentially. And yes. that's one of the things that's so cool about Airbnb mm -hmm. is that it's solving an exponential problem with like there is waste around us every second of every day. Yeah. It just takes waste takes the form of someone not using a spare room yeah. or you know basically places not being used as multi-use there's over 100 million like empty homes if you took you know five or seven countries around the world and just took a look at them i mean the number of empty and that's not even getting into empty rooms these are just homes that are not you know new york city has i think if i'm doing this off the top of my head correctly i think over 200,000 empty units of housing you know here in san francisco much smaller place but a place with one of the biggest housing challenges in the country, I think over 30,000, 35,000 empty houses. And doing that's not that, even rooms. I mean, that's... Just whole houses, right? Yeah. Doing that in one fell swoop, you know, would be the single biggest thing you could arguably do in San Francisco to create more housing. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why that's hard for, for it to happen. Some of it actually, and ironically, is a byproduct of a lot of well-intended policies to make housing more accessible and affordable, but they've actually ended up at some level being counterproductive. And so I think even as we think about the policies 
around this. Like, should it be really easy to build an ADU, right, in, in your backyard? What do those ADUs look like? Can you have, you know, plug and play types of facilities? And you'll already see some of those with the dwell housing and, and some of the other. But how do you think about your infrastructure, your sewage, those things that become really easy and accessible for people to be able to add this housing, you know, into what, what exists? How do you think about zoning laws in terms of heights and, and, and footprints? And I mean, that's part of the thing with building with cross-laminated timbers. Yeah. You can't go above, it's like three stories yeah. and then six stories for yeah. other places. Yes. So you're talking about like, w- like what is the yeah. policy that, that kind of plays into that. And like, funny enough, having you on, we're not like diving super deep into policy in in the future yeah. cities for the idea that like, we believe that the policy will catch up, yeah. do the hard work of uh, people like you, <laughs> but that it'll catch up to the to the technology. Yeah. I think that if you look at a lot of that's the tech, history. yeah, it's just that's what that's what happens is like the innovators are figuring out ways it, to. It's so funny you say that. I, when I first took this job, people can't see it, but we're in a room that's probably about. 10 by 12 here, maybe I'm looking at a beautiful room yes. in Airbnb's headquarters. <laughs> and you know, the entire policy team could have fit in this office w- when we first started. But when, when I first came here, and I just, it, it, it's a, it's a, your point is really well taken. One of the things that I did was I went back, I love history, as you obviously do, but went back and studied like when there was disruptive moments like this. And I looked at gas lamp to electricity, horse and buggy to car. And what you just said is exactly what took place. I mean, gas lamp to electricity. So electricity, Tesla sort of comes up with the ACDC. And there was initial opposition in New York City and New York State to electricity. They claimed it would make cities unsafe, too much light. Then there was a natural desire to apply the gas lamp laws to electricity. Electricity was an actual technological grid, like gas lamps was not. You would go put the gas in the actual lamp. And and then and, and the robber barons who controlled the gas lamp industry passed laws to make electricity illegal. And what happened was the innovators, you know, continued to push and ultimately an education process took place. And then the policy ultimately caught up and they created what I think worked really effectively, which is basically a utility type of model, which hadn't existed, you know, up until then to be an effective way to have a regulatory structure, you know, around it. But it took the pushing to get there. Yeah. And I think that there's Early, I mean, as with everything in technology, there's early adopters and those early adopters are willing to try things that will make their lives incrementally better. Yeah. Or in some cases, like with true innovations and disruptive innovations, as Clayton Christensen yeah. said, like the true disruption happens when it's exponentially better than nothing. Yeah. Right. So if the difference between me going from the bus stop where I get off yeah. to home is I either walk or nothing, yeah. it's like. <laughs> When a scooter comes along, I go, oh, well, this is so much better. I can get home twice as fast. And to to people, I think a lot of times we look at those things and we think, well, like that's kind of trivial, but it's like, that's 30 more minutes with your kids. And just think about, I mean, such a profound point. I come out of the political world, right? I used to be a political consultant. I used to work in government politics. And imagine if you could go out there and you're running for office in any one of these big cities where you know a top three or four issue for the voters is is their commute time. Absolutely. Right? And they, they may not articulate it exactly that way, but if you could guarantee someone that you're going to reduce, imagine a politician going out there saying, I'm going to reduce your commute time by 30% or 50% and then actually be able to do it, right? Is a pretty significant, so you're, you're absolutely, that is not a trivial thing, right? There's, that there's, is a significant, but that's how you get the answers to this. There's yeah. a reason why that Elon Musk is cold hero is yes. because- 
you say everyone's you know focus on driverless cars we're going to talk about driverless cars in the in, in the podcast but and they're extremely interesting and in being able to reduce traffic and all of that but you also look at like hey we can we can bore under the ground yeah. we can make things that are way faster under enormous cities like yeah. chicago and la yeah. and these places that have these huge problems yes. and it turns out the other thing is there's not just one solution. All of these <laughs> solutions can interplay. Yes, and they have a domino effect or multiplier effect on themselves. Yeah, exactly, that you can self-select into things. Yeah. But I think that when you look at the like larger landscape of things, you don't, and like again, a scooter to a bike like doesn't really seems like it makes that much sense to some people, but when you figure like the handlebars of a scooter are half that of a bike, yeah. So you take up half yes. the time, like those type of things compound into something that when a million people are using it or for yes. Airbnb's case, yes. 260 million people have used Airbnb yeah. or probably more than yeah. that now. But you're talking about like those little things compound over time to- There's also safety elements, the space that you need for the scooter. There's all sorts of elements that come into it to, to your point that then have that sort of cascade effect. And I think that policy is there for, you know, to make sure that we have checks and balances sure. on those type of things. But I think ultimately like the innovators will create something if they're customer centric, yeah. will create something for humans that they love yes. and that they want to be part of their daily routine yes. or their weekly routine or whatever it is or when they travel. And that thing is going to be something that makes their life better. And that's what we should be doing. I think that's a thought. And, and you know, one of our points, it's not that you don't need regulations. In fact, you do need regulations because that does actually make society work better. It just needs to be the right regulations for the right time and the right thing, right? You go from the horse and buggy to the car. You know, France passed a law when that first happened, and it said you needed to have three, three people with the car, a driver, a passenger in case something happened to the driver, and the guy walking in front of the car waving a red flag. So the car couldn't even go faster than the guy who was walking, and the red flag was to wave the driver over in case they came up upon a horse or a horse and buggy, right? Now, the car should, should not have been driving 150 miles an hour, right? But it also should not have been driving five miles an hour. Like if it's on the highway, 60, 65 is a good safe speed, right? But figuring out what those things are, you still needed that regulatory structure to make sure it was working as well as possible within the social contract and, and, and what serves society. But you do need to evolve. There's a Greek proverb that says, a society grows great when old people plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. What is Airbnb doing to plant trees? This is sort of the intergenerational equity question, right? Are you really going to look out? And, you know, particularly when, when you're thinking about, like, we face huge issues right now in the world. I would identify those, and this is just my list, right? There's any number of ways you can slice and dice this. Climate change, conflict on the rise, economic inequality, which, you know, I believe is going to only be exacerbated with, with the robots and AI and, and the machine learning that's coming. But I think underpinning, or, and this is going to try to answer your question, underpinning or, or underlying all of that is that you know, the ability for us as humans to ultimately be able to address what I do think are some really significant existential challenges. Right? If we don't have a, if we don't address climate change, like everything else sort of becomes, <laughs> that's like a core, it's a core problem. But underlying the ability to, to address all of that is whether we're going to live in an open world or a closed world. And I think that question is being called right now. You know, everything from the building of walls, travel bans, the digital bubbles that people are increasingly uh, living in, driven at some level by, by, by how the algorithms work and how they're incentivized. And I think, you know, ultimately, if we're going to continue to advance, and I'm, a, I'm an incredible optimist, I, and I also have two boys, 11 and 13, so that's I, why we're making be, the podcast. Right? That's right, right. I'm a member of the Optimist Club. I drink the Kool-Aid. If, uh, if you don't believe uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, team, we're team human yeah, all the way. Right. That's right. That's right. So, so I do think, and, and look, at, you know, 
humans have gone through periods, right? Two steps forward, one step back, you know, as, as former President Obama would describe it. We'll figure it out. But, but I do think that question is getting called now in, in a pretty significant way. And I think, you know, we think of our role, our responsibility, be clear, we're not the answer to all of these issues, right? These are huge, huge, huge issues. But, but to your question about what we do to, to plant that tree so that someone else has shade in the future, you know, it is about trying to create a platform where people can use technology to actually connect and spend real time with people offline, right? And, and if we can do that, and maybe that becomes a model for others to be able to use in other spaces and other venues, I think that's a, that's a pretty significant tree to build out there that will throw off, I'm not going to throw shade, but hopefully throw off shade for folks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, within that, we're using technology to create economic opportunity for people, using technology for people to get on offline and uh, online to offline, right? All, all that type of stuff. But ultimately, I do think allowing people to spend time with others from different backgrounds drives and supports an open world. And an open world ultimately allows us to address some of these big challenges. I totally agree. And I think that, and we'll get into smart cities in a second here, but I think that what technology allows you to do is specifically with Airbnb, and I've stayed at Airbnbs in uh, Stockholm, in Copenhagen, in Brazil, and a few other places, is that you are relying on them, and they're relying on yeah. you, and it's a and it's aligned incentives. It's, it's and, a social contract. I, sorry to interrupt, but it, yeah. it, is, it is. You know, I I joke with Brian, Nate, and Joe, who are three founders. I said I'm not sure. I mean, Brian and, and Joe both were art design guys. They went to Rhode Island School of Design. Like, I'm not sure they were necessarily thinking of themselves as being, you know, the latest in a long line of Enlightenment philosophers when they sort of thought about of this course. place, right? That's just that, right? But they were taught to design things for humans. And so the very design of Airbnb, which I think, you know, uh, ultimately is how it drives this open world, is Airbnb as a, as a company, as a platform, only succeeds if its hosts feel like they're getting a really good deal, right? They make 97% of the money that they list their homes for. Those hosts only succeed if those guests feel like they're getting a pretty good deal in terms of what they're traveling, authentic, real experience, good value, but they have to behave themselves. They have to treat those homes like it's their own home when they go in. And then ultimately, do those communities feel like this is a healthy form of tourism that, that, they're, that they're benefiting from? That becomes a circle, right? There's not a gatekeeper sitting up top that makes the vast majority of the revenue, not a gatekeeper that's sort of controlling everything, right? It's really a people-to-people, -people, and in that sense, really does drive a social contract. So I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that is sort of the – when people ask, like, network effect, optimization, all these types of things, at the end of the day, the magic sauce here is you built something where humans had to rely upon humans. It, was, it is a people-for-people -people platform. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you look at people's, the photos of their family in their house, yeah. when you look at, you know, all of those things, you're, you're going to treat it with care and, and respect. Yeah, I tell the story, like, so I travel, as I mentioned earlier, about 100 times a year. And, um, you know, I discovered Airbnb back in 2012 or 2013. I was traveling with my family. That's, that's how I discovered it. But I always tell the story, particularly when I'm giving talks and speeches, that, you know, I stayed at some great hotels, some fabulous hotels out there. I never once ever made my bed in the morning at a hotel. I make my bed every morning at my Airbnbs because, you know, hosts and guests rate each other. And I want to make sure I continue to get that five-star rating. Because if you don't, you get migrated off the platform pretty quickly, right? It incentivizes people to behave themselves both sides. But that, I think that really does speak to how you actually created a model that actually incentivizes people to be good. So with the rise of smart cities, mm -hmm. I want to talk about what a... 11-star smart city experience. So Brian Chesky has this famous 
thing that I think is brilliant where basically the idea of of when they're thinking about Airbnb that, you know, what's a one star experience, what's a five star, what's and then start going up from there to the idea of like eleven star experiences like, you know, you get picked up in a private jet and there's a parade waiting for you and all this stuff. <laughs> I think it's a great great idea and a thought thought process. What's your like eleven star experience of the future of cities? I think, you know, my eleven star experience for the future of cities, I think we we touched on some of these elements, but I'll try to try to pull them together with with technology yeah, so yeah, it's you, yeah. you know with with being connected mm-hmm. to each other with smart cities and, yeah. and all the technology yeah I, it was so first of all i i think at a baseline level does you know does technology actually help you um, create cities that are going to be sustainable from a climate perspective because i i do think that that is almost a threshold question uh, that we have that we have to be able to solve i think secondly you know is technology allowing people to really genuinely share information, ideas, and thoughts in a way where you're just not preaching to the choir, that the, the same people aren't talking to each other, that you're actually generating a real discourse and, and, and conversation out there. You know, again, going back to our historical analogies, I think right now in terms of, you know, particularly how some of the social networks work, it's a little bit like when the printing press first came out, like people look back and think the printing press, you know, was this great thing. Initially, it actually created a lot of conflict. There are multiple terrible the things. The idea of banned books is yes. so crazy right. in our current right. Right. day and age. But right. you're but that, just thinking like, right. that is insane. Right. That right. there were banned books. Yes, right. Because and like the, we have the internet. There's no right. such thing but as But no one had anything. a printing press before, right? Yeah. And suddenly you're able to read a tract that has, offers a different religious viewpoint than, than what your entire society is built around. And, you know, that took a long time to sort of for humans to adapt to the printing press. And I think we're going through a similar period with, with social networks now. So, so ultimately my hope is that, you know, technology does help facilitate. We adjust ourselves a bit so that, you know, it's actually being used as a real way for people to share information and ultimately be able to leverage that information to have better quality lives, more, more informed lives. I mean, education is obviously a, a derivative of that. And then I think if you think about, uh, to me, we're, we're ultimately technology helping people really to be able to meld work and play. And I don't mean that in a frivolous way. Like, I don't believe we're going to have a time where there is some guaranteed universal basic income where people are sitting and playing whatever the equivalent of PlayStation is in in 50 years and somehow getting a check in the mail every day. Totally. But do I think, and I look at our experiences, do I think that people will be able to actually tap into their passions and what they really like and be able to generate economics off of that in a variety of ways? Yeah, and I think technology can be particularly as, as, as you move into AI and robots doing the sort of the labor manual types of work that, that people didn't necessarily always get the greatest benefits from and certainly impacted their physical bodies, right? I mean, you had a retirement age because your body would just wear down if you were working on a factory line. Yeah. Uh, but, but ultimately, are they able to sort of de- identify what they really love and enjoy and be able to use technology to actually translate that into an economics for them? Like if you love to cook... Can you suddenly be someone who's cooking multiple meals that you really love and feeding some of the people, you know, in your neighborhood? I mean, we have, we did this partnership and, you know, with, with the World Surf League. And, you know, these surfers now, professional surfers, are able to use our platform to do surfing lessons. And they're taking their passion and what they really enjoy, and they're finding ways to create economic extenders out of that. By the way, again, I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not saying, like, Airbnb is the, 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 the solution to these things. I'm making the point that, you know, can technology be used 
to help people actually be able to match up and align with what they want to do, their passion, and be able to succeed economically from that. And, and I think you can see versions of that where people are actually living not only healthier lives from a physical perspective and from a climate or sustainability perspective, but like a healthier life almost from a spiritual perspective and that you're really getting a lot out of what you are doing. Yeah, I mean, I think I, the way that I kind of see these things is, and we talked to someone who created like modular hospitals, yeah. and all these sort yeah. of things, like the idea that you could wake up in your, you know, beautiful like wooden home that looks gorgeous like a you know cabin but it's actually looks and feels like you're part of like the earth and like not in a concrete you know block that you walk out you get into your car that takes you to or there's a car waiting for you that takes you to the hospital you go check in do all your like last minute checks that you that it takes you to the airport you immediately walk in with like get your eyes scanned get on a plane that as soon as you're getting on the plane, someone is checking It's a solar-powered plane. It's no longer carbon-powered. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that someone is checking into your house who's going to be staying there. That's right. That's already, like, ready for them to go. That you take off on that plane ride. You can finish, like, the six hours of work that you need to do because this is a Friday or you're doing some accelerated learning, catching up on uh, missions (laughs) podcasts. Um, uh, That you're able to do that. You're able to work on the plane. You touch down in, you know, some other city where you get to go in and stay at someone's place and have dinner with like a family in Uruguay or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like those things, all of those technologies exist. And I think that in the future, your life is richer. Yeah. And richer from a, just a a fulfillment perspective. Yeah. And, and you're, you're actually using all the space that you can. And like, you know, the car, the car is not yours. Like the house is yours, but like the, it's being used while you're not away. I mean, like one of the people live in my building, pretty much does that whole thing it's not as streamlined but and then you just think of all of the different things that a smart connected city when all of those things are actually connected that all of those data points end up going to a place where it's achievable at scale and like i know that like people especially in the startup world we throw around like scale as a word like way too often but it is achievable when there's enough data points and this is where you look at with like the future of, you know, we were talking to Marty Koistra, who's the head of the Seattle Housing Consortium. And you're talking about, you know, they need a hundred and whatever. It was like 150,000 units of housing. Well, it's like if we were all connected and we kind of knew, and obviously there's privacy issues, so I don't want to say that there's not, but if we're connected and we know at least like what spaces are available, like that can actually make a big, like a big dent, plus adding, you know, efficient, affordable housing and all those things. Like, you can the, chip even away the, at the design and construction of those houses, right? Exactly so like, right. You know, they're, they're actually even designed so that they're shareable. And you're seeing that beginning to develop, right? You're seeing some of these ha- housing being designed so it is actually shareable. At some level, being driven by some market forces, like we've seen this in some developers in New Jersey, some in Florida, where they recognize that you've got a millennial generation graduating from college with a 20x debt load higher than it was when I graduated. I graduated a while ago. But at the same time, when there's wage stagnation, economic stasis, right, so that they're not even able to generate the economics to pay for the housing that allows the capex cost that took for the housing to get developed in the first place to pencil out, right? So these developers, almost from a market perspective, are building the shareable homes or dorm-style homes, right? And you're seeing more and more of those, right, where people live in these dorm-style type of homes, but that allows it to work economically. And it also allows for really maximizing the utility of that space. Now, I think for a lot of folks, you know, uh, particularly of my generation, right, they may say, well, geez, that's not how, you know, my, that's, that's not how I, but that's because that's only your reference point. Right? No, so you when you start to think about it differently. <laughs> you're, you're, everyone is, it's like, and 
you only get one yes. shot at this yes. life and yes. like your frame of reference is the only thing. Yes. Adam Crow says that the happiest marriages have the most square footage. Yes. And I think that that's a really funny thing, like way of looking at it. But for some people, that's absolutely true. Yeah. For other people, like they don't mind, yeah. you know, living on top of each other, or having, you know, yeah. both grandparents yes. in the house and all that sort of stuff. And like each person's frame of reference is it's completely different. different. And, and, you know, look, there's all, and I don't want to get, because some of this stuff can get pretty controversial or provocative, but, you know, there's sociologists, anthropologists who will go back and say at different time periods when people lived more intersected like this, you know, there was a pretty compelling argument that they were happier lives. I mean, certainly look at how, you know, Native Americans had lived prior to the European settlers coming in. It was a very different way where things were shared in a different way. There was a very communal aspect to it. People would still have their own individual space, but it was just a different way of thinking about spatial relationships, responsibilities, how you intersected with your fellow human. And so I, I you know, th this idea that we're sort of caught in, to your point, in this time period, this is what the, it's going to look like going forward, is not consistent at all with the history of humans. <laughs> I, no, I totally agree. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get into the lightning round. Sure. These are questions that I've not shared with you. Uh -oh. <laughs> so they're a little easier, maybe a little bit more fun. What app on your phone are you using that is the most fun? Can't use, say, Airbnb. The most fun is, well, geez, I would say I'm a sports, I'm a sports nut. I'm also a, a, a book nut. And I would say that probably Audible, which I love. You know, I go for my workouts every morning and... People make fun of me because the types of books I listen to when I'm going out of workouts, I'm not listening to music. But I also love the Bleacher Report because <laughs> I can get my alerts instantaneously. <laughs> um, what is your favorite city? I love Portland, Maine. I'm from Maine originally, and I'm going to be there in two weeks. Stay at a, a part of Portland is this island called Peaks Island. But that's it's you know it's you know still Robert Frost line like home takes you when no one else will. So I, I, if I could do an extender on it, I would say. You know, I've talked about how much I've traveled. There are a couple of cities that I've really fallen in love with. There are some cities I always loved. And there are a couple that I've really fallen in love with that I hadn't been to really before taking this job. A couple of them probably wouldn't be surprises. Tokyo and Berlin. Fantastic. I just came back from Berlin. Like, We have another one of the folks on the podcast said Berlin as well. Fantastic city. Fantastic city. Well, great, by the way, Netflix series, Babylon Berlin. Just do a mm. pitch on that. Great, great series. Berlin in the 1930s. Two other cities I would put into the mix, Buenos Aires, which I really have come to love, and Mexico City. Mexico City is a fabulous, my incredible friend, food, my incredible came art. My back and said it's just an it's awesome. It's an awesome city. And so, you know, when I, it's, like a, you know, it's like a gift, right? I have, other than the fact that it's a big deal that I leave my wife and two kids when I travel, like the travel itself is inherently fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite sports team? Celtics. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Favorite podcast? I have a couple that I listen. I mentioned earlier. I, you know, I like. I really enjoy Ezra Klein's podcast. I love the BBC's In Our Time, which I now have foist upon my children. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they have probably scarred them in some way. And I love. Uh, I love Bill Simmons. Yeah, me too. I love. Yeah. I've been listening to Simmons for a decade. Yeah, he's great. I mean, <laughs> the voice of the fan. Yeah. Favorite recent book you read? You know, I just read a book on. The Thucydides Trap, which is looking at, you know, times in history when rising powers, ascending powers and descending powers and how they come into conflict. And it's basically taking a look at that, those historical lessons and then looking at the U.S. and China. You know, I also just read Hassan's, or was it North of South? I think it was, it was a book about, basically it was, it was a parable about refugees. And in the book, like there's a great line where he talks about life is travel, right? And, and in this book, people who are living in 
countries suffering from conflict, and they don't say exactly where, but it sounds like it's Syria or you know, somewhere in the Middle East, you can go into a closet and it's a portal. You know, he, initially, he, he ends up in, in London and then eventually in Marin. Like and, Marin headline? Like yeah, in Marin, but, but this is sort of a, you know, fast, you know, it's probably 20, 30 years in the future. It's, it, and really, it's a parable about refugees and how we as, a, as humans handle and deal with it. But it was a great read. Favorite show you're watching? You know, I just got done watching, it was a, uh, blank in the name of it, Eve was in the name of it, but it was this... Killing five, Eve. Yes, Killing Eve. Which I was, didn't watch it. Yet. My wife and I watched it. It's a great series. You know, it's five or six episodes. And for those who don't know, it's, it's you know, it's sort of a spy thriller set in the modern era, but built around women, where you have a woman spy who's British, MI6 or MI5, and then you have an assassin professional who's a woman, sort of a psychopathic woman, and how they sort of... It, it was just a really, 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 really well done. I also just watched A British Scandal, I have, uh, which, is, which is great. Watch it. That's awesome. That's so, a great... Yeah, I'm waiting. And I think it's three episodes, about an hour, hour and a half each. That was really, really good. That's on my, yeah. that's on my queue. Yeah. Okay, final question. Yeah. Favorite one-day getaway in the Bay Area? I'm incredibly blessed we have a place up in calistoga and you know at some point this afternoon i will be i will be taking advantage of oh, that that's great <laughs> so our ceo is just in calistoga like two weeks ago ah, in, the, in, yes. a, in a yurt yes oh, i mean it was yeah. on fire though, <laughs> but unfortunately i'm like i was just up in uh, northern california yeah. and it was like man fires are raging but yeah calistoga is great calistoga is awesome okay that's it thanks so much for coming on thanks that was a lot of fun Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Show notes.